Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. What are we to make of a Democratic Party that embraces an election strategy that includes demobilizing the majority working class, non-Republican electorate, legitimizing right-wing agendas, narratives, seeks bipartisan cooperation with right-wing politicians such as Liz Cheney, refuses to attack archaic minority rule institutions, including the Electoral College and the Senate filibuster, repeatedly backs down from hauling Donald Trump into court and funds far-right Republican candidates in this year's primary elections, repeating the disastrous Hillary Clinton campaign's Pied Piper ploy of promoting the supposedly more beatable Trump in the 2016 Republican presidential primaries. Why is the Democratic Party lavishly funding Trump stooges, such as John Gibbs, a former Trump administration official who claimed that Joe Biden's 2020 election victory was, quote unquote, mathematically impossible by giving his campaign $425,000, investing more money in one pro-Gibbs television ad than Gibbs raised for his entire campaign? Why do they see the stoking of fascist fire as an effective campaign strategy? Even the New York Times has called the tactic of funding far-right pro-Trump candidates a, quote, cynical low for the Democratic Party. Joining me to discuss what is taking place in our bizarre political landscape as we head towards the midterm elections, elections the cultist Trump Republican Party looks set to win, is the historian Paul Street. Paul has taught at numerous Chicago area universities and is the author of This Happened Here, Neoliberals, Americaners, and the Trumping of America. He also writes regularly for Counterpunch. So, Paul, in one of your columns, uh, you uh, tick off, I think, a kind of laundry list of all of the egregious failures on the part of the Democratic Party that you argue, I think correctly, has resulted in the rise of a figure like Trump. And I want to begin by going through them. Uh, a capitalist system whose underlying tendency uh, towards the ever-increasing concentration of wealth and hence power repeatedly humiliates delegitimizes and discredits democracy in the eyes of the masses, helping open the door to authoritarian solutions. Can, can you talk about that process? Well, there's a longstanding toxic relationship between economic inequality, socioeconomic inequality, and democracy. Uh, um, wealth concentration is also power concentration, and wealth concentration translates, uh, uh, not just under capitalism, but in any social formation, translates into disproportionate authoritarian influence over the making of government uh, decisions. Uh, um, and um, that wealth concentration is inherent in the very nature and the workings and the operations and the contradictions of capitalism uh, as a system. And it's just an ongoing tension in Western history. It's an ongoing tension in American history. And, um, you know, when you uh, repeatedly violate and uh, undermine and um, humiliate majority of public opinion on one issue 
after another. There's there's a huge uh, empirical social and political science research on how technically irrelevant public opinion has become in the contemporary American neoliberal plutocracy. It's just extraordinary. Take your issue. Uh, recently, abortion rights, uh, uh, gun rights, uh, uh, climate action, um, uh, healthcare as a human right, uh, union organizing rights. You can just go through this list of one thing after another that is supported by uh, well, relatively progressive uh, policy, uh, sometimes more than just relatively progressive policy that's supported by the majority of the population. Uh, student student debt forgiveness, for example, uh, um, and it's 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 canceled. You know, it's it's called capitalist cancel culture. I guess it's canceled by corporate and financial power by concentrated wealth translating concentrated power. And when this happens and accumulates again and again and again enough over decades, ultimately the notion of um, democracy and popular self rule, I think, becomes uh, exposed as bankrupt as uh, useless as irrelevant and and people don't take it particularly seriously and particularly when the one the, when the party that claims to be the party of the working people uh that claims to be the party of the working class the party of the poor is egregiously in bed with um, corporate and financial power uh it's going to uh be um, unable to reliably consistently uh um bring to the polls the voters that they need to defeat the other party, which, by the way, just happens to have gone essentially fascist, fascistic over the, over really since Obama, if not before. And um, and yet that very system that's undermining democracy is also constantly generating crises, ecological crises, uh, health crises, uh, 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 zoonotic viruses that are just endemic under this system mass poverty, mass homelessness, rampant alienation, uh, uh, just a kind of a spiritual meaningless to 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 a, a life under the rule of a class that's imposed. And Marx and Engels wrote about this in Purple Passages in the mid-19th century that drowns everything uh, uh, in the icy waters of egotistical calculation and, turns, and subordinates everything to profit more. So you're constantly generating economic crises and social crises and spiritual crises and you know, of, of probably the greatest significance right now in, in this time that we have left on Earth. Eco, an unbelievable, uh, fast-moving ecological crises and on and on, which, which the ecological crises then turn feed into and, and help generate more social and political crises. And you have crises that need solutions, but democracy is no longer credible or viewed as legitimate because it's been, uh, it's been, uh, its authenticity has been undermined by the underlying class and dictatorship of capital. People are going to turn to authoritarian more explicitly. We already have an authority. A capital society is an authoritarian society. It's a, it's a de facto class dictatorship. But nonetheless, there's, there's, there has been previously for most of American history, this kind of bourgeois, democratic, constitutional, electoral rule of law form where at the end of the day, you honor the outcomes of elections. Now we have one of the two major capitalist parties has is really ready to and is in fact rejecting that and is ready to even strip the last embers, the last shreds, the last uh, uh, um, remnants of of what's left of democracy and crossing over into this authoritarian space. And, you know, Mussolini and Hitler made the trains run on time and Trump comes in in 2016 and says, I alone can fix the solutions. 
uh, and you have this very alienated ups, uh, populace that's uh, prone to magical thinking because of the insanity of the, the corporate uh, culture that uh, that they live in, and they look for solutions in great leaders, uh, no matter how comic and ridiculous and pathetic and malignantly narcissistic those leaders may be. Uh, they they can capture a certain essence. So there's a certain brilliance to people like Bolsonaro and Orban and Trump and other modern day neo-fascist authoritarians who who, who are going to fix things for the people and and dig into some very revanchist and reactionary cultural strains as they do that. And um, you know the Democrats have have created a context for that. They've created they've they've participated quite richly. And that, and now they're actually not not only indirectly creating the context for it, but now they have this cynical uh, uh, Pied Piper uh, um, uh, electoral calculation, whereby they're directly contributing uh, to the rise of the most uh, right wing fanatic Republican candidates on the cynical theory that um, that that those are the most beatable candidates in the twenty two in the 2022 midterms. And uh, it's, they're really playing with fire. They're really playing with fire. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about why that's not likely to work, actually. It's, it seems like a doomed, uh, suicidal, uh, kind of a suicide pact way of going forward. It's, uh, what they, I guess they think they're being daring and cool, and it's a great gamble that's going to pay off. But uh, I don't think it is. And maybe we can say a thing or two more about why it won't. Well, let's talk about it because you write about it. Uh, you, I think, correctly point out that the Republicans probably are going to win. Uh, and these uh, fringe far-right figures uh, will be swept into office uh, with that landslide. Uh, uh, you also write, I thought, quite presciently about abortion because the, the uh, Democrats are banking so much of their electoral strategy on uh, the fact that they uh, will protect the right of a woman to control her own body. They use the referendum that was passed in mm. Kansas. But you, 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 you really, uh, uh, I think, quite uh, astutely uh, explain why that isn't going to work. So uh, why don't we do that now? Yeah, well, you know, the... Uh the midterms that are coming up are are um, stuck in a historical pattern. It's it's almost it's almost a law that the that the the party, particularly during its first term in White House power, lo- loses significant numbers of members in the House of Representatives in the first midterm election. The only exceptions are 1932 because of the Great Depression and the New Deal, Roosevelt in 2002 because of 9/11, and, and the Bush Party was able to keep them. They always lose. Why that is is an interesting matter. We don't have time. To discuss, there, there's this problem of inflation, which is just devastating for the for the Democrats. Uh, there's there's Biden's incredibly low popularity numbers, which are just cratering. They're in up their high 30s at best, um, you know. And and the, the percentage of people in the country to say the country is on the wrong track is a big indicator, and that number is just huge. So it really really looks bad. Now this notion that the abortion issue is going to be some sort of magic bullet. It's going to provide the solution for the Democrats and allow them to keep the House of Representatives in the Senate in 2022 in November is really, really problematic. Uh, 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 and, and there's a cynicism about that. And it goes back to uh, bef- this whole last uh, uh, seven, eight months. I heard numerous Democrats, 
Democrats in Iowa tell me this was part of the, the advanced surrender to the abolition of Roe v. Wade, to the reversal of, of women's right to an abortion. I actually heard Democrats say to me, uh, it's okay. First of all, they totally underestimated how devastating this decision would be and it's already showing itself to be for women in half the states in the country right now. But they said it would be okay because it's going to work to our electoral advantage uh, in November, which among other things is just incredibly cynical. And, 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 and it's a remarkable statement of moral, political, and policy bankruptcy that your strategy going forward is, it, is, 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 is a horrific, is a horrific decision coming out of the Supreme Court and, and, and the horrific fascistic nature of the other party. That's your campaign strategy. So they say they're going to, uh, they say they're going to win on abortion and they cite this Kansas referendum, uh, um, and they cited quite deceptively as proof that this this is the way we're going to keep the House of Representatives. This is the way we're going to keep Congress. Uh, because, and, and the problem with that is, is yes, there was a policy-specific referendum uh, in Kansas recently and consistent with longstanding majority, 50-year majority public opinion in support of a woman's constitutional right to an abortion, even in Kansas, in a right-wing state like Kansas, more than two-thirds of the people, or was it two-thirds? Uh, supported keeping the right to an abortion Kansas Constitution. Great. That's cool. But that was an election that's about a specific policy issue. That's not what our savagely time-staggered, partisan, corporate-crafted, uh, 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 big media, uh, biennial and quadrennial extravaganzas are, are about. They're not, they're not policy referendums. They're not even particularly about policy. They're, they're, people vote about the most ridiculous things imaginable, which candidate they want to go out and have a beer with. Uh, um, um, but now, nowadays in this hyper partisan polarized environment, they, they vote a lot on the basis purely of party now. We're, 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 we're at a high water mark of partisan polarization. And, and the abortion issue in November is going to be folded into any number of various issues. There's all kinds of things that people will be thinking about, even insofar as they're thinking about policy and all, and not just thinking about the candidates they like the most and the party. That they that they that they like the most, and where abortion is going to rank in that policy mix compared to, for example, the price of gas or the price of food, or issues people have about uh, um, grievances they have about what's going on in the schools with their kids or COVID policy. There's a mishmash of issues, all of which kind of get uh, thrown together in a smorgasbord and subordinated to campaign finance, to campaign contributions, to media buys to media ads into partisan logics. And so, you know, uh, uh, it's not even remotely clear uh, that the abortion, I suppose there will, there, there, there does appear to be a bit of an, uh, an abortion rights backlash, which may help the Democrats contain some of their damage in the midterm elections, but it's not at all clear that it's going to be anything remotely close uh, to what they say it's going to be to, to save their uh, majority position in the House and in the Senate. Let's talk about the media, which you write about. Uh, you argue that the media, which is controlled by about a half dozen corporations, uh, its role is to orchestrate mass consent to class rule, empire, um, and intimately related hierarchies of race, gender, nationality in its entertainment wing. Uh, uh, even more than it, which is more powerful, you write, than its news formats. This dominant media sells sadistic, sexist, racist, and nationalist violence while propagating hyper-atomized individualism. 
consumerist, one-dimensionality, anti-intellectualism, and narrow identity (laughs) politics. Well, you nailed it. Uh, But uh, it's important because uh, the the power of this media landscape to orchestrate and not just shape opinions, uh, but to prevent people from even asking the right questions, I think is quite frightening. And, And you've addressed this, but talk about it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that passage. Uh, I met Noam Chomsky and actually sat down with Noam for a beer or two, and I think it was Bloomington, Illinois, in 2003. And the first thing I said to him was, you know, I I learned a a great amount from your book, Manufacturing Consent, about um, the role of the mass media, in in, in particular with regard to the New York Times and the Washington Post and CBS and all that. I said, but you know, the entertainment wing is probably even more significant. It's a much bigger deal. It also sells hyper-militism and individual and portrays everybody. It, 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 provide, it, it, it portrays this incredibly revanchist, uh, uh, violent, uh, Hobbesian view of human nature, of individuals as nothing but one-dimensional power seekers and sexual predators and consumerists and and you know, and, and upholds that as either the glorious way that life ought to be or just the reality of how human beings are anyway. You know, things like solidarity, things like revolutionary uh, concern for all of humanity, things about, you know, beautiful spiritual connection to others and to the planet that we all share are all sort of created as cranky, weird, marginal kinds of things. And this is true in the movies. It's true. It's, it, it's probably even more powerful in the, in the movies, in the sitcoms, in the series that people stream on Netflix, in the video games, which are just absolutely savage. And one of the ironic things about Hollywood and the entertainment culture is a lot of the moguls and the leading executives in it lean liberal. They lean, quote, unquote, left uh, um, and are, you know, intend to be Democrats and tend to get very huffy about Trump and his base and the neo-fascists and all of that, who I hate, too. I hate all those people. And yet they are the they are the investors in and the managers of and the deliverers of this incredibly revanchist uh, 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 entertainment, which which is intimately linked back to the news media, which filters out anything that doesn't fit the dominant paradigms of capital and its empire. You know, and I said, and some some other Chomsky, and he, and I was expecting to get sort of ticked off and defend uh, his his one sided focus on uh, on the news media, and he immediately. He said, that's absolutely right. He just said, he said, I just can't bother to look at any of that content at all. It drives me crazy. He said, he said, the only time he ever looked at it once was he was laid up in the hospital with something and he had no choice. He was stuck in the hospital bed and they had the TV up there and the movie. No one was just so intellectual that he would never watch, you know, something like Die Hard or, uh, you know, or whatever that crazy movie was where someone had control of a bus that ran all over the place. But yeah, it's... um. It's 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 both wings of that uh, of that media, and um, it's incredibly racist and it's incredibly sexist, and it and it and it it, provi- it, 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 it portrays a vision of humanity that is um, absolutely just uh, soulless and and, and uh, individualistic and dis- despicably disengaged from uh, human concerns. Well, it pumps out this sickness of you know purification through violence. That's a constant theme. Right. And I, I empathize with Noam. I don't watch any of that stuff either. Um, <laughs> let's go right into there, what you do about the 440 million firearms, including at least 25 million military assault 
rifles disproportionately in the hands of right-wing racists, sexists, nativists, and nationalists, this is an important factor, I think, in terms of where we're headed. And there's about 30,000 militia members in the country, and those, those arms are almost, uh, you know, uh, completely owned. Well, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. They're very disproportionately owned by people on the right. So when you talk about militias that are armed, you know, uh, I think the Socialist Rifle Association and Redneck Revolt would be about 0.03% of that, uh, um, whereas the three percenters and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the rest of the vast panoply of white nationalists, white supremacists, neo-fascist groups, um, you know, make up more than 90% of the armed militias. But the, the ubiquity of weapons um, is just unmatched uh, globally and historically. I, I, I don't know any modern industrialized country that's ever uh, been so permeated by um, um, by firearms, including uh, what really amount to wartime weapons of, of mass destruction, which is what military assault rifles are. And um, I think it's already one of the as, one of the key aspects of fascism is, is is political violence and the embrace of political violence. And that doesn't just mean uh, brown shirts and black shirts and stormtrooper boots armed or not walking around and beating people up in the streets. Now we're in an age of um, lone wolf violence where there's a kind of fascistic fear and in, 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 uh, an impact of um, right-wing uh, incels who are part of online communities in which they are encouraging each other and upping the ante psychologically with each other to film live hits against so-called liberal and so-called left targets. And of course, in fascist ideology, everything's left, you know, them. Everything, uh, everything to the right of Trump, everything to the left of Trump is Marxism and socialism and anarchism and whatever. And, 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 um, and I, I, I know already, I've seen survey data, people are already afraid, uh, um, to exercise their right of public assembly and free speech in some occasions out of fears that, um, they'll get shot, you know, and it's, and people have been shot. And, uh, there were, there was a hidden story of during the George Floyd rebellion. I ended up doing a piece about, uh, about 20 people who ended up being hit by cars, ended up being shot and physically attacked for standing up for um, for civil rights. And it's pretty much all a um, a, uh, a, a right-wing phenomenon. And it's a big deal. Well, they use these big monster trucks, which are probably as close as a civilian vehicle can come to a tank uh, as forms of intimidation. They're not that far from the technicals we used to see in Somalia with the machine gun mounted on the back. And one of the things that happened in some red states, Iowa was one of them after the George Floyd rebellion, is that a number of bills were passed that could facilitate and make it easier for uh, um, these kind of neo-Serbian uh, uh, incel right-wing freaks to plow into people yeah. the time and get away. And get, it's just actual legislation. As a legitimate form of self-defense. Right, yeah. Because you're afraid when you're surrounded by people. You know, we're protesting, holding up signs for democracy. Right. A bunch of Quakers and sandals. Um, so uh, you talk a lot about the educational system in the United States and how that has contributed to the shredding of our democracy. You have this figure, which I didn't know. Uh, more than half of Americans between the ages of 16 and 74, 54 percent, read below the equivalent of a sixth grade level. And yeah. all sorts of theorists, I mean, Dewey and others, would tell you this is a huge flashing red light. 
You know who was uh, always sort of in the van, I suppose he's still writing, in the vanguard of talking about the literacy crisis um, in the country is this wonderful liberal education and uh, uh, writer Jonathan Tozel, who I yes. think wrote a book about the crisis of American literacy many years ago, probably back in the 1980s. I, as a college instructor, um, when I went back into the classroom about five years ago, after a long absence, was really struck by the decline of language skills. Uh, which were never particularly impressive in the institutions I had, had taught in before. Uh, but I mean, um, real inabilities to put together whole, to string together whole sentences, uh, epic difficulties, uh, reading assigned material far beyond anything I had seen before. And I had been, it's interesting, but I had been away for, oh, close to 15 years doing other things. I had taught for many years in the 1990s and I'd just seen things that, I hadn't seen before, and it had a lot to do, I think, with social media and the amount of time people are spending uh, looking at highly distracting, decontextualized, quick hit visual images on Instagram and TikTok uh, and Twitter. You know, Twitter with its uh, uh, character limits of, I can't remember what, 264 characters per post. There's a, a technologically embedded attention deficit disorder. There's also a... Um, there's a shift in, in um, I, I guess I'm, I'm talking more than I ought to be about, about college students, maybe, because that's my experience. But it does seem to be an intimate relationship between internet culture and online culture and, um, and, and this problem. I was teaching a 400-level course at the University of Toronto, and I, I was having my students read Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. And I, I, they couldn't. Uh, they were, they were obviously struggling to find the attention span to do the required reading. I uh, mentioned this to uh, the great writer and philosopher John Ralston Saul uh, about what was happening in the classroom, and he said that, of course, most uh, professors are finding this among students uh, who are, whose attention spans have been destroyed by constant the need for constant dopamine hits from social media. And he said it's not that they're stupid because they're not. They're quite intelligent, but he said in some ways they're illiterate. Uh, and I thought that was a good distinction yeah. that we are uh, essentially moving, even among the educated, to a kind of post-literate society, which I find, as I'm sure you do, very frightening. You know, I think that's, you just cited the brain science on it, and I think that's really the point, this need for sort of constant uh, dopamine hit. There's also a... Um, there's a loss of time relative to what I recall when I was young and coming up uh, um, that, that's related to, uh, I guess, sticking on a college issue. Uh, um, um, I, I, kids, kids are working a lot more than I remember any of us have to in undergrads at Northern Illinois University. We had to, to, to go to university, to go to college, typically for, for most of us was to have just a hell of a lot of time to, to, to read a lot of stuff. Uh, and also a sense of, uh, of of freedom to study topics that may not have an immediate economic payoff. And one thing I've noticed is since the recession of, of 2007-8, parents were just uh, really hitting down on kids and giving them hell for being English majors or philosophy majors or history majors and saying with these huge tuition bills and the way the job market is right now, you're going to college to, to get a marketing degree or an engineering degree something in the realm of business that's going to pay off and make these tuition dollars pay off. So there's also, there's a shortage of time. People are working more. They are, um, 
they are under pressure from parents to make their tuition dollars pay in a way they never had before. And it's just tragic. It's just leading to a loss of critical thinking skills, uh, along with the dopamine hits of the, um, of the constants looking at your Facebook and your Instagram and your TikTok and your Twitter and so on and so forth. And it's the general stress, which eats away at cognitive capacities. That's part of this rat race, uh, hyper capitalism that we've created in the last four or five decades in this country. And, uh, it's, it's disturbing because democracy depends on a raw material called human beings who are cap- who are cognitively capable of, um, of, of processing complex material. I did a lot of activism around the abortion issue, unlike the choice, the mainstream choice organizations, right after the Supreme Court heard the case and all the way up to and through uh, the Dobbs decision was over through the constitutional right to an abortion. I was really shocked by how many people, including young women for whom this ought to be a critical matter, actually did not know what Roe was, um, why it was in danger, and what the Supreme Court was doing and saying about it. Literally, like it was news to them that their right to control their un, their, their reproductive lives was being targeted um, by the Christian fascist right. And of course, say a phrase like the Christian fascist right, and you're in lecture space right there. You've got to do a lot of work to even say what that is. And there's just, there's, there's less to work with. Um, well, that, that's, that's by design. And as you point Absolutely. out, you know, it's, it's worse for the working poor and the working class because they need two yep. or three jobs just to tread water. And right. you write, uh, essentially what this does is revoke the ability to participate in any kind of popular struggle in terms of their own defense. Right. This is coupled, as you also write, with high consumer and student debt uh, and economic inequality uh, that uh, keeps essentially, these are your words, the masses on a seemingly endless treadmill of work, spend, and pay. I just want to close. I've got about a minute left, but I want you to talk about what you call a pathetic and decrepit left. <laughs> well, you know, in, it's a, funny, in a minute, I, in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I find myself more and more and more not using that phrase to describe myself. I just call myself a socialist or a communist right. or a revolutionary. Left is becoming increasingly problematic. It seems to sort of almost increasingly refer to a kind of uh, economistic what's in it for me a materialism, which seems to reduce socialism to um, not, you know, which seems to throw out the notion of a revolution completely and reduce socialism to collective bargaining agreements and electric cars or something. But there's also this kind of uh, hyper-identitarian wokesterism now, which just seems to be about a um, wokeism, which just seems to be about oppression Olympics. I'm more oppressed than you based on my identity. And again, this kind of me, me, meanness, me, this is my identity. And so you actually get people, when I come out in the streets with Rise Up for Abortion Rights, fighting for women and girls and females, yelling at you and saying that your language is exclusive and against them because they're trans and uh, and losing touch with the fact that the war on abortion specifically targets women. Of course, we support trans rights, but but it all becomes it's about me and um, and my identity. And I'm currently in transition and therefore I'm more oppressed than women. You know, half of humanity who are currently in the targets of the of the neo-fascist uh, Christian right. And and. Um, I don't know, more and more of what's called the left just seems to be in a ghetto of these types of very narrow 
pursuits and and identities and um, and activism. And it's uh, it's sad to see. Well, it's a campaigns for moral purity is a way to compensate for an utter lack of political power or, frankly, the interest in creating the organizations that might give them political power, isn't it? Yeah, and there's this sense that knowledge grows completely out of one's identity and who one is as opposed to doing any work, like actually digging into some history and and reading up on just exactly what the Roe v. Wade decision was and what the Jackson v. Dodds decision was. It's just like it's all about who you are instead of what you know, you know, and, um, you know, this is, this is part of a kind of reductionism down to almost nothing. Well, that is disastrous. The disease of the cult of the self. Uh, I want to thank the Real News Network, its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. <laughs>